Coming up next on Thriving in Recovery. Intentional with all the things. Um, from what I'm eating to what I'm experiencing to how I'm experiencing it. And so I'm just not, and it's not easy. Um, I mean, when I talk with families, they're just like, I I mean, how do you do that? And I'm like, I wake up every day and I choose intention. (laughs) That's what I do. I walk outside and I choose to experience. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Thriving in Recovery. In this episode, we speak to Lisa Smith, a certified family recovery coach who works with families of individuals that are struggling with substance use. Lisa shares her own personal story of navigating her son's addiction and the breakthrough moment that led her to become a coach herself. She also discusses the importance of leading with intention in one's own actions and relationships, as well as the support systems that have helped her thrive in her own recovery journey. I'm your host, Bryce Givens, joined alongside my co-host, Justin Harris. We really hope you enjoy this episode. Lisa, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, how you got into this space and a little bit of background to share with our audience? Yeah, thanks for asking. So I like to start by saying I am a person in recovery from the effects of substance use in my family. And I use that language pretty deliberately not to take away from somebody on their own personal recovery from substance misuse, but to shine light on the fact that addiction is a family disease and the whole family is affected and the whole family, um, can recover, um, individually and as a group. So I became who I needed when my oldest son was struggling with substance use and I couldn't find me. And through a lot of really great treatment centers that he, uh, went through several of them, participated in family programming, had therapy sessions, had our own therapists, and were given very well-meaning guidance to support him and ourselves. And none of it, one worked and two sat with me as a mom. It didn't sit with my mom heart. It didn't feel like natural for me to, um, detach from my child who was killing himself. And, um, it did, it just didn't feel right. And so I went in search. I was a teacher actually for 20 years and I went in search of a different answer. I didn't like the answer I was being given. So I thought, well, I don't know, maybe there's another one. And, um, went and found that there was a whole lot of data around modalities that are effective in, um, not only supplying recovery and a sense of peace to family members, healing for family members, but also being able to um, teach those family members to connect with their loved one in a way that is impactful and creates influence to them. So here I am. (laughs) That's amazing. Um, Tell us a little bit more about your son and the experience that you went through as a mother, um, and throughout his, his story and his journey into recovery. Yeah. So my son is currently two and a half years in recovery. He's 22. So he's, um, young, um, to be two and a half years in recovery. And so his 
substance use started early and started with a lot of um, trauma from various directions, school being one of them, um, school being a major source of trauma for him from the get-go. And as a teacher myself, that's hard to kind of look back on and realize the failures of um, kind of our system on kids that are like him, that that are outside of the box thinkers and don't learn in traditional ways. I'm um, an existing gray area in our in our square walls that we create in education. And um, and then we also had a couple of um, kind of big things. We actually experienced a wildfire and we lost our home in that wildfire when he was at a really important age, actually in middle school. And, um, it was kind of just the culmination of all of that, that really created a space that he did not feel, um, safe or accepted, um, in his kind of development as a person and discovered drugs and alcohol, um, that just kind of continued to spiral. So things got really bad, probably when he's was about 16, things started to get really bad. And, um, over the course of the next several years, um, we did everything that we could. I mean, he went to wilderness. He, we plucked him out of situations and put him in other situations. We took him out of schools and put him in other schools. We did all the things that, you know, maybe would have been a solution and none of them were, were working. He would continue to, um, kind of go back to, using substances. And uh, my kind of moment of absolute, like this is something has to change. It literally was a moment. I remember exactly where I was standing and my uh, world went from what I didn't realize was black and white to color um, in a split second. And he was in active use and he was in our home at that point, had gone to several treatment places and um, he went somewhere. It was February. It was cold. He, he walked out in flip-flops and shorts in Colorado and which sometimes works, but it, it not generally very long. Um, and I had a moment where I said, he's not going to live through this, this, he's not going to live. He's going to die. And am I okay with the last thing that he saw, felt and heard from me as a mom? And that was really the moment that I realized that this was all about me. (laughs) And how was I going to, uh, be able to get through, tread these waters. And if the waters continued to get bumpy, how was I going to be able to continue my life, um, with any purpose if something didn't change? And that's when I really realized that like, I mean, there's gotta be something else. There has to be something else that nobody's telling me. And when I started to do the research and realized that there were ways to communicate with him, there were ways to create boundaries that looked nothing like the boundaries that I was creating, or I thought the boundaries I thought I was making that weren't really boundaries. They were just rules. Um, there was a way for me to take care of and honor myself and my own values and my own worth in this, um, space And in doing those things, I could actually have the influence that I was trying to have through control and manipulation and door slamming and yelling and crying and pleading and all the things that, that had been happening. So he knows, um, when things changed, (laughs) he, he can tell you, um, that communication changed boundaries all of a sudden felt real. Um, and 
he was given the power to decide to choose his own path. And it took a minute, um, a few actually, um, but ultimately because it was his choice and because he did have that power and the connection with us, we never detached. I don't like that word that um, people use that they say detach with love. And I always say that detachment's not love. Actually, you can rest, but don't quit. Um, you can learn how to stay connected and stay safe. Um, and so our family really kind of absorbed all of this. We thought we have, this is it. This is our last shot. We have no other chances because this is not going better. And, um, in doing that, we saw little changes start to happen and things got worse before they got better, but ultimately our connection got better. And that question that I asked myself, if he doesn't make it, am I okay with the last thing that he saw felt and heard from me? The answer became yes. So I had no control of his outcome, but I had every bit of control of my relationship and how I was going to engage and how he experienced our family. That's amazing. Um, wow. So I want to talk about the connection aspect. I love what you just said about like the, you know, detach, um, and how you disagree with that. Can you kind of elaborate more on a, how like connection in your experience with this particular breakthrough, um, not only transpired, but how you developed that sense of connection will, will still without not enabling your son. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so in the work that I do, I, the enabling word is actually, it's a bad word. Um, I don't use it and I have, have clients or people I'm working with say, well, I know I'm an enabler. Um, and I just stop them at that moment, um, and say, first of all, I'm not going to use that word. You get to decide how you're going to engage in this relationship but I want you to be intentional about what you're wanting to express. Um, and then ask yourself the question, am I taking away an opportunity for this person to grow, learn, experience something that they might need to experience a natural consequence? And if the answer is yes, then probably you're doing the other E word. Um, but if the answer is no, then how can you move forward? in your values and really, again, be intentional about what you're wanting that person to experience. I'm wanting them to experience, um, that, that I'm not leaving, but that might look like I need to take some space, physical space, because you're not safe in my home. If you're punching walls and coming at people and bringing in, um, dangerous people in the middle of the night into our home, that's not safe. That is not safe. So can you stay connected and still create safety and boundaries for yourself? So, I mean, Johan Hari says the opposite of addiction is connection and family systems have the deepest connection opportunity. They have daily contact, have the opportunity for daily contact. You might see a therapist once a week, twice, if you're lucky, if you're in treatment, you have daily contact with various professionals, but not the same ones and not on like a super deep level, like a family system. So families have the opportunity to be 
ground zero of that connection and making sure that families can understand that you can love your person and you can hate their behavior. Those are two separate things. You can really do both things. It's hard. It's not easy. It's super hard to watch when someone's hurting themselves and other people, but you can, if you do the work on yourself, be able to engage in a way that you honor that person's journey and their choice on, on that path. And when my son was out and things were bad, he could not at that last, that he could not live here. He was, he was violent in our home. Um, we were not safe. And, um, you know, my house had become a war zone. Um, but we connected with him daily and we didn't connect with him daily when he was living in our house, we avoided him daily. Um, but when he was out, you know, there was text messages, there was phone calls. We would meet him for coffee and for, um, lunch, we'd bring him a subway sandwich and meet him in the park. Um, my husband took him to the gym to shower. Um, not to our house, but he honored him as a human being. And he continued, the message continued to be the same. We love you. And here's our boundary. Let us know when you're ready to change, but we still love you. It was never about only if you get better. We didn't know if that was going to happen. That is so like emotionally intelligent. I find that it, through my experience, you, you know, so many parents or family members or loved ones are like ill-equipped to know how to communicate with a loved one and they just don't know what to do. So I think it's super important uh, to educate more families, which kind of brings me to my next point about like, I know you specifically work in this space with families. Can you kind of share with us about what that looks like and what your intention is, um, whether it's through education or through intervention or, or how you're helping families and, and what that modality looks like? Yeah, I can. Um, can I back up just a second to one thing you were saying about just families being ill-equipped? Of course. I think that the core of that, and then I'll move forward, the core of that, and I say this frequently to people when, um, and it's just really about validating where families are and when they can't let go, when they can't, um, let go is not the right word, when they can't change their actions and their engagement with their person to look different, it's based, it's all based in fear. It's totally based in fear. They're afraid. And it's really easy without lived experience to sit in front of a family and say, you need to. <laughs> um, but when you have lived experience, I can say, I, yeah, death is real. That that's an outcome that might occur. Um, and you have zero control over it. And my question is, well, actually it's usually a statement. I say, fear does not prevent dying, but fear does prevent living. And it prevents loving. Really, it prevents you loving your person because you're afraid they're going to die. And so you're showing up this person that you're not actually, um, that you don't want to be remembered as your impact on them is not the effect that you want to have. So living by fear, it, it doesn't work for anybody. And probably the biggest piece of work that has to be done is absorbing that my biggest fear is that they're going to die and that that is on the table that's on the table. So how do I want to be intentional with every single interaction, moment, expression, 
facial expression, physical presence and words that I say so that they feel honored as a human separate from their behavior going forward, how I work with families and why kind of my philosophies around that is, um, I've been doing this for, um, kind of officially and, um, full-time for about a year and a half going on two years. And when I first started, you know, it was just like kind of meeting people where they are one off, one off, one off. And I I've evolved over that time. And when I work privately with families, I ask for a commitment from them, um, because the change does not happen in 50 minutes or an hour and a half. Um, it doesn't, I can solve some problems. I can give you language that feels really unnatural to come out of your mouth because it's my language, um, that are aligned with my values, not your values. So I ask families to commit to doing some work on them and it's an investment in their family. So maybe take a pause because families are so like, Oh, you know, we're, we got to pay for this and we got to get this and we got to do this for them. And, and it's all about externally, um, supporting their loved one instead of working from the inside out. And it's almost like doing a cleanse, um, and kind of going, okay, now I'm just going to eat things, put fuel my body with things that are going to help me move forward the way I want to. And it's kind of that same process. So I asked for a, a two month commitment to work with me privately. And we dive into you first, <laughs> who are you? Who did you wake up? Even though you didn't go to sleep, that person, I always say, I woke up a door slammer. I I'm not really sure when I went to bed one, but I somehow I woke up one and I wasn't proud of that person. Um, so who do you want to be and who are you now? Let's get back to that other person and move forward that way. And now we can start working on understanding your loved one, why their behaviors make sense that it's not personal. Um, it's not about drugs and alcohol. It's about something else. And, um, and it makes sense and it works for them. Um, understand the neuroscience of addiction, awareness of themselves. What are my patterns? How did I get here? Um, what are my values? What are my reactions and how can I start to respond rather than react? So respond intentionally rather than react emotionally. And then finally we can get to how do you communicate all of that? understanding awareness in a kind way. And that's kind of my philosophy around working with individual families. I also do group programs with um, various um, organizations, treatment centers, um, consulting firms and things like that. And then I do my own stuff. I, I have a holiday boundaries workshop coming up. Um, it's just a couple hours. So, um, so everything from deep dive work into whole family systems to a couple hours, let's talk about what a boundary is and maybe be able to um, be effective moving into a difficult season and setting some boundaries that are um, impactful and not mean. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> Oh my goodness. So can you kind of just elaborate on the process again that you go through? I want to kind of slow it down and can you maybe break down what you think the like top three to, I mean, you named several things that you work on with families. Like what have you found to be 
the most impactful for the, the families that you work with, or at least the most palatable. So things that they can apply like immediately, because some of these concepts, like, although they seem simple are super hard to, uh, you know, buy into and, and adjust to. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the most impactful things, people really want to get to boundaries right away. I, I need to set some boundaries. Um, and I was kind of like back up, like I include boundaries into my conversations with them. Um, so I kind of allow organically, you know, and then this happened and kind of some storylining. And then I, I'm able to stop people and say, what if, let me, let me say what you just said, and then let me try that a different way. So let me think of an example. Um, let's take a holiday one because since the holidays are coming up, let's take Thanksgiving. Um, so let's say somebody has a loved one that is, you know, kind of known for, um, wrecking balling the Thanksgiving dinner, um, and doesn't usually show up them their best self. Right. So everyone's stressed out about it yet. We still want to have this giant, um, family gathering. Right. So there's several ways to, kind of support a family moving forward in that. And so someone might say, well, you know, they can't, they can't come. They can't come. I had to, I have to tell them that they can't, they can't come to dinner. They're not welcome. So I might stop somebody in that moment and say, okay, so what about the situation is not welcome? Well, I mean, they, they drink and then their behavior and they ruin everything. Okay. So can you set some parameters around and depending on where this person is right. Um, in, in their own, kind of health journey. Um, can you set some parameters around what works for your family and maybe do some acknowledgement and some understanding. This is the understanding piece of it. Understand that their behaviors actually make sense that what they're doing might be to cope with what they're walking into. Um, so can you understand that it's hard for them to join the, the family gathering and yet they still want to be a part of this. So how about, It seems like it's a lot to show up when all of the family is at the house and kind of giving somebody the opportunity to feel acknowledged in the hardness of the situation. Um, you don't, you don't need to have coping skills, um, that don't work for you or anybody else for that to happen. So I'm going to acknowledge that. And then moving forward with, um, we would love to be able to see you on Thanksgiving. What do you think about coming before the whole fam comes and having, I can have all the food ready ahead of time and we can sit with you and you can have a plate and then you can go before all of the chaos starts to happen. And that might feel better for you. What do you think? And giving somebody the opportunity to actually go, that might, that might suit me well. That might suit me well. Um, so that's kind of incorporating kind of all of it. Like I'm aware that I have some worries, fear around them coming over and ruining the whole day. That's awareness. Understanding is they're probably just as worried and stressed out as I am over this because it hasn't gone well the last several years. And then being able to communicate in a way that isn't mean, but states your wishes. Does that kind of make sense? No, totally. I think that's a great representation of like setting boundaries, like boundaries in action. Like that's, it makes absolute sense. 
Um, yeah. Wow. Um, one, of, so one of the things that's hard, kind of like what you were saying, like there's a lot to unpack in there and there is, which is why I just don't meet with somebody one time because right. I can't unpack. I just, it's too much. Um, you can't make change, um, in one meeting. You just can't. I mean, you might get a, a little idea that, Oh, we have a lot to work on, but you're not going to make change. So, um, I think one of the hardest parts is for families, at least in the way that I've moved forward is this isn't scripted. There's no script. My script works for me. It doesn't work for you. I could help you find your script, but my script is, is mine. Um, that's going to work for me and my situation and my values and my family. Um, you need to find yours. Um, so kind of sitting in the center of all of these concepts and depending on where your emotional health is in the moment, where their emotional health is in the moment and where your kind of just ability to communicate is in the moment. There's not one answer. Sometimes you might validate somebody. Sometimes you might reflect on what they're saying. Sometimes you might just listen. And sometimes you might have to say, gosh, I don't think I can be a part of this conversation today because it's just too painful. Maybe next week we can talk about this when I've taken care of myself a little better. Those are three different options to the same scenario. And it's important. I think the power in that though, is for families to realize there isn't a script that's right or wrong. It's hard to get there. Um, and sometimes a script feels easier, but the power is I can navigate any rocky water, any bumpy, you know, kind of wavy water that I come up to, um, if I have the skills and I use the term parallel recovery very purposely all the time, um, because my experience watching other people in their recovery, personal recovery is like, I always look at a situation and go this a hundred percent. We go through the exact same thing. I, I run a support group on Wednesdays and last night I, we had a support group and, um, we were talking about some communication skills and um, one of the people in the support group was kind of talking through a scenario that they had where they caught themselves. Um, their loved one said, well, you know, I, um, I applied for this job and I'm really excited and I kind of think I'm going to get it. And they are living in a tent right now and not doing super awesome, but they were really excited about this job. And what was exciting to them about this job was, um, that it, it was working with animals and they were excited about it. It felt, it just felt really purposeful to them. And they were, were truly excited about it. And their loved one, their support system jumped in immediately because that job didn't fit their mold didn't fit what their hopes had been for this person. And they said, well, you know, have you noticed that like this, this, and this Amazon's hiring and this is hiring. And they kind of jumped in and correct, like kind of jumped in on their excitement and then caught themselves and said, you know what? I'm, I'm sorry. That was, I did not mean to do that. And they backed up. And I, in that moment, I stopped that person. And I said, I just want you to realize that is equivalent to what you just did is so powerful because it's the equivalent to somebody struggling in early recovery, taking their car and driving to the liquor store and sitting outside of it, but not going in. That's the same exact thing. You drove there, 
you stepped in a little bit, maybe even you walked in, but you didn't drink. And that's, and you drove and you corrected yourself. You made a U-turn and you got out of that. So I think that the, again, going back to the power of families, really realizing that this isn't a script, this is a, um, a lifestyle choice and a lifestyle change. I think it's a very powerful one and impactful one, um, to kind of get to reach. If you do the work, it's hard, hard work though. I thank you, Lisa, for all your wisdom and knowledge around this, um, just this whole recovery world and not having gone through, you know, substance use yourself, you seem really wise to to how to deal with the situation. You talked about addiction being a family disease early on. And then you talked about your work um, in helping yourself before you could properly honor your son. And so I'd love to know what that work looked like for you. Yeah. I mean, I think that what that work looked like to me was I had just really gotten to a very toxic place um, of you know, I wasn't misusing substances, but I was working out too much and eating too little and overworking in my job. And, um, I had isolated myself from most of my friendships and relationships. My family was, you know, there would be four of us in the house and we wouldn't be in the same room. None of us would be in the same room. Like we just were, so alone and isolated and unhealthy emotionally, physically, mentally. Um, and I'll just speak for myself. I was emotionally, physically, and mentally unhealthy and kind of pausing, um, and kind of just dialing in all of those, those pieces, all of my buckets of wellness, um, and making sure that I was, um, I'm going to go back to the word intentional, intentional about all of the yeses that I, that I was creating in my life and all of the no's and what was behind them. Um, that, you know, my yeses weren't because I felt like I needed to, or that it was my obligation or because I'm, Oh, I want to be a good mom. So I should do this. And my no's weren't because, um, I was acknowledging the feeling behind the nose. So not just, well, I'm tired. It was, you know, Right now I'm, um, grieving a person who's alive and that requires a whole lot of emotional space. And that's why I'm tired. So it's not just, I'm fine. I'm tired. I I'm not sleeping enough. I'm not eating well. I'm not drinking enough water. It wasn't those things. It was truly, it was sitting with the hard things, sitting with the hard feelings. It was sitting with grief of milestones that I didn't have. Um, and that I should have had, it was grieving what I was seeing other people's kids go through and experience that mine wasn't, it was grieving the fact, I mean, I was planning his funeral, um, and he was not, um, dead. So that's hard. It's really hard to do and acknowledging that and really processing that grief as grief, um, processing my fear as fear and not allowing it to just all default to anger, um, which pushes everybody away, but keeps you safe. <laughs> um, so that's the work I had to do. So really, I, I kind of feel like I should have gone to some of the treatment centers that my son went to. <laughs> no doubt. Would, have been, would have been supported better. <laughs> I had you, to find were my- 
Uh, you had talked about your world going from black and white to color in a moment, and you've certainly given us lots of context around the relationship with your son. How has it changed the other parts of your life? Oh, just so much better. I mean, I, I again, going back to the word intentional, I am 100% intentional with all the things um, from what I'm eating to what I'm experiencing to how I'm experiencing it. And so I, I'm just not, and it's not easy. Um, I mean, when I talk with families, they're just like, I, I mean, how do you do that? And I'm like, it, I wake up every day and I choose intention. I, that's what I do. I walk outside and I choose to experience. Um, and you, you get, you get a choice. So you can experience, oh, I wish it, I wasn't out here walking in the cold or I get to experience breathing fresh air and the fact that my dog loves to walk at oh dark hundred in the morning and I see the sunrise every day. I mean, that's an intentional choice. And there's days when I wish I was in bed uh, this morning. It was kind of windy. I was like, Ugh. but, um, but I, I get to choose that. And I, again, with a parallel recovery, when I talk to my son, I listen to him a lot. I, I listen to a lot of people. And I, I think the best people in the world actually are people in, in personal recovery because they have um, had to do every piece of hard work that everybody should have to do. Um, and they've had to do it just to um, live. But my son talks about, you know, making very intentional mornings and then checking in with himself at night. And um, I think the same thing, I, I do the same thing. Um, I've recently kind of made a change in some commitments that I have had for a really long time. And I kind of let that sit for a while and stew in my head. And rather than being reactionary about it, I let it kind of simmer. And when I was ready to say the no, no, thank you. I'm not going to be a part of that anymore. I was super settled with that decision. It wasn't sad at all because I had already grieved a little bit of whatever I needed to grieve and realized that this wasn't something I was going to regret. This was a decision that was best for me right now. And, um, that's how I'm going to move forward. So intentionality for me is a hundred percent kind of my survival um, skill that probably the biggest survival skill that I got out of this. It sounds more like a thriving skill, not a surviving <laughs> skill. Yeah, it is. I think it is. <laughs> and you had said your son that had the substance use issues was the oldest. How does he relate or how do the, his, do they relate with um, amongst the siblings through through the substance use and, and now. Yeah. Uh, so I have two boys um, and my youngest, they're, they're actually like four years ish apart. They're like four grades, three and a half years, but kind of four years apart. So they're a little bit far apart. Um, and that was really, really hard because when our hardest moment with our oldest, um, our youngest was he was little. I mean, he was not an older kid. He was small and, um, scared. Um, and so some of our boundaries, once we got to the place where we were actually able to kind of protect everybody in our house and, and set some clear and, um, deliberate boundaries, um, were around creating a space for him that was, um, way more peaceful and safe than it had been. Um, and so their relationship became quite fractured. Um, they're now, my youngest is actually, he's a freshman in college. He's doing very well. And, um, he 
is super confident and also has done a whole lot of his own kind of personal work around um, shame and wearing, especially because I do this work now, that was definitely a family decision of kind of approaching my family and saying, okay, so this is a thing and mom needs to do it. Um, cause nobody's doing this. Nobody's helping people. And, and also what that means is our story is going to be a whole lot more public than it had been. Um, and you're included in that story. And how do you feel about that? And both of my kids, I mean, my oldest son lives like totally out loud. Um, but my youngest was just like, absolutely. And he is really confident in his own, um, you know, security, talking about substance use, talking about addiction, talking about trauma, talking about, um, mental health. Um, the school, the college he goes to is actually super progressive in terms of, um, they have every Thursday they pass out, um, they do Narcan training on the lawn. It's in California. And, um, so it's warm and, um, they do Narcan training and pass out these kits and he, and he got all his friends to go like do the Narcan training. And, um, I mean, he's just, he just is an open book about it. So, um, their relationship is more repaired than it was, but definitely it impacted their relationship for sure. It's going to take time, I think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. My, my brother, my younger brother is, he lives on the street still in Spokane, strung out on crystal meth. And mm -hmm. I haven't talked to him in a long, long, long time. Um, yeah. So it's, I could see that being tough and he was on drugs. Like when I was in high school, uh, I'm a couple of years, I'm a year and a half older than he is, but it started early in our family. And it, we, my mom didn't have the emotional intelligence that, that you did to realize that I need to do this work on myself. And so it's definitely created, um, lots of walls in our family as it relates to that for sure. So. I think with siblings too, they carry a lot of protection for their parents and what their parents have been through. And I, that can definitely, I think, continue some challenge, I think, in that sibling relationship healing. Um, cause yeah, I know my younger son feels some level of protection, you know, and anger around what he saw us experience. Yeah. I'd love to go back to the holiday season just because it's almost among us. And you talked about the holidays being difficult to navigate with the substance use issues and the family dynamic. And I'd love to just know more about why that is and, and, and just to go into that in deeper detail. Well, I think even without substance use issues, the holidays are hard for family systems. Um, and there's really very few people that I talk to that are like, woohoo. Um, I can't wait to see all the people that I don't choose to see on a regular basis. Um, and that's hard. Right. And then when you add in just, um, people not showing up their best self, that's harder. Another part of, I literally, it was August this year and I had three clients that brought up holidays in August and I was like, Oh, here we go. It's going to be a doozy. Um, it, I mean, it was end of August and people were like, can we talk about the, can we talk about Thanksgiving? And I'm like, it's, it's 80, <laughs> like, no. um, but, um, I, there's a lot of, I think it starts with expectations. I, I, I think that's where all of it comes from expectations, 
that are real and expectations that are imagined um, around an outcome that an outcome, something needs to look a certain way. It needs to be a certain way. People need to act a certain way. We need to have dinner at this time, not that time. All the people need to be sitting. We have to have wine. Do we really need to have wine? Maybe we don't this year. Um, you know, somebody coming home, just coming home from treatment. Wow. I know let's jump into a 30 person dinner. With, with all the, with all the, you know, closest relatives. And then like, let's talk about how you're doing. That sounds fun. Can you talk more about like, so you just mentioned outcomes, like how do you coach families through detaching from outcomes? Yeah. Intentionality. It's what if, can you love them? If it never looks like your picture, whatever it is, they, um, their life, their job, their relationships, um, their image, their behavior, their substance use. Can you love them if they don't, what if they don't get better? And that bring that has to then bring you back to right now. You said your mantra was begin again. Yeah. Yeah. I have a rock actually right here. Begin again. Um, yeah, I, I just sort of made that mantra up because I had this rock. Actually, I mentioned that we went through a wildfire and, um, someone gave me that rock when we moved into our new house and it has engraved begin again. And it was just so fitting. It was like, we built, we actually built our home on top of our their home. And, um, so it truly was beginning again. And then when I went through this experience, um, I realized, I think I just learned a whole lot of gratitude for the opportunity to do it better to begin again. <laughs> um, and you know, I, I would not choose the circumstances around which got me here today. I would not do that again. Um, and I hope I don't have to, although I do know that if I, my um, health is not um, attached to my sons. Um, so if we did, we did. Um, however, getting to where I'm at today, um, allowed me the chance to do things better and differently. And my relationships now are so much deeper and more, um, they're just better, um, than they were before. We communicate better. We show up for one another better. We understand each other better. We acknowledge each other better and accept each other better. And because of that, individually, we can do that for ourselves as well. Begin again that, uh, I love that one. Um, I love, it's interesting when you, when we talk to other people and we ask them, um, you know, similar questions, like it's really interesting to see how your experience 
or your answer to that question through your experience um, leads to you describing what some people might not interpret as, uh, hmm, how do I want to say this? It's interesting to, to see that how you relate to these families and how you hold space for families in pain, how you show others that they can be seen and heard, how you can hear their stories and experience with them again, and how all of that ties into the intentionality and communicating that through not only your experience with your family, your nuclear family, but with these other people and, and making it okay for them. Um, so I think that's a perfect mantra, uh, especially from given what, you, what you've shared with us today. Uh, Justin, do you, you have any other questions? I'm sure. I mean, I know you're masterfully taking notes over there. What, I've got lots, uh, of, got lots of notes over here. Yeah. I guess I would ask for some personal advice then on how I might, uh, love my brother, even though I don't separate from his behavior, given that we've been separated for a long time. And this is after like lots of years of stealing money and like helping over and over and over again. And the, the, the biggest separation between us right now is he lives in Spokane, Washington, and I'm in Anchorage, Alaska. So I don't, I'm not within any kind of proximity of him. And, um, certainly when he's clean, I love hanging out with him. I miss my brother dearly. Um, he just hasn't been clean for a long time. And so, and coupled that with the, the physical separation, um, there's just this lost relationship. I, his, um, his kids hang out with me all the time. They were at my house for dinner a couple of nights ago. They're coming over for Thanksgiving. Like I have a really good relationship with them, but seemingly not much of one with him. I think I'd start with just kind of asking you the question. I mean, this is clearly, there needs to be space and, um, um, I'm sorry. I don't hundred percent. No, I think I know the answer to this, but I, but I want to, um, solidify. Are you yourself in recovery? No. Okay. Um, sometimes particularly people who are in recovery, um, you can't actually engage with, or that would be too dangerous for you to engage sometimes with somebody who's actively using like that actually puts yourself at risk, right. Of like, I can't go into that scenario depending on um, the stage of your recovery that you're in that might actually put you at risk. Um, so I guess I would ask you what is at the core of what you would wish to be able to express? Like if you were kind of isolated a core value of, um, you know, if you were at your 90th birthday party and people said, this was the impact that this person had on me. This was the, this is what I felt every day or every interaction with them. Do you, can you identify a value or a, a word that would be like, I would wish him to feel this from me? Protection. Huh? You know, he's, I, he's my little brother, but he protected and I'm six, eight, I'm bigger than, I don't know if you've met Bryce, Bryce is six, six, I'm six, eight. So I'm a big guy, but I was very, um, picked on in school a lot. I totally relate to your son's trauma in school. That was me just because there was all these expectations placed on this big kid. I was big softy though, you know, and there was these expectations of playing football and basketball. And I, even in, in seventh grade, I was also very big. Um, back then I'm still, I'm like 200 and 
70 pounds now, but I'm fit. Um, I was probably 200. I was actually 250 some pounds in seventh grade and was made to play high school football because I was over the weight limit for boys club. And I wasn't mentally, emotionally, physically ready to do that. And I just got my ass kicked and I, and then they making fun of me because there's these expectations when this big boy walks on the field that he's going to own some things. And I didn't own anything. And so my felt like my brother protected me a lot when we were kids, you know, I didn't have any friends. So I would hang out with him and his friends. Um, you know, kids would pick on me, he'd come to my defense. And so I would want him to feel that from, from me today, just because he did that for me for so long, you know, before he started on his. I love that. Uh, So I'm wondering if there's a way you could occasionally, um, express to him exactly that just, and, and maybe it's one time initially of expressing it just, um, I worry about you. And if there's one thing that I could provide for you, it would be protection and say it. And here's the, here's the problem. People who use drugs, um, that sinks in, but then they react in ways that, um, feel hurtful to us back. So he might lash out or he might say, well, if you wanted to protect me, give me money. Or that's my sense of what it would be. Yeah, that's where we come, and and then you could you could cut it off, um, and just and that's where the boundary comes in. So expression under of understanding and awareness of like what I want you to feel from me at the core is protection, and um, acknowledge. You know, if he kind of comes back at you, like you don't even know, you don't even know the danger that that I live or whatever. You know, all kinds of stuff can come back at you um, with that if he's not in a good place. Acknowledging that I don't know, um, and I'm sorry that you're hurting, and then you can just you don't have to continue the conversation. It doesn't have to go back and back and back. You don't have to engage in the triangle that he he's going to try and pull you into, mm-hmm. um, so that he can be the victim of why you aren't paying him money or taking care of things or doing why he's in his situation. Um, you don't have to enter. You can just stay outside of that triangle and say, I'm sorry, you're hurting. And I just want you to feel that if I could give you one thing, it would be protection. And I do wish that and think that over you daily. And that's it. And then maybe occasionally you could, you could give something to him, like in terms of, um, love expression a text thinking about you does it doesn't have to be something that would expect a response back in fact i would encourage it not to expect a response back just a statement and an expression sometimes that's just the first it's just like i'm just going to put this i'm going to plant it you can throw it in the garbage if you want but i promise you people who use drugs are very lonely they're very lonely and they feel that they do feel, they, they feel it. They might lash out. They might say, you know, you don't love me, but if it's authentic and it comes from your heart and there's not an expectation for him to change or respond. And if he does respond in a nasty way, you don't have to, you don't have to take that. You don't have to take it. You can just say, gosh, I'm sorry. You're feeling that way. Yeah. And I certainly, with all the trauma I grew up with as a little boy, I, I, closed off my heart. I built a cave for myself, not realizing I was actually building a prison for 
<laughs> myself. And I've certainly done the work over the last five or six years and am in a much different spot today than I was in previous, uh, you know, interactions with him. And so I feel like I can still honor him as a person, but not be okay with his behavior. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be continual, right? It doesn't have to be constant. It can be occasional. Um, until he realizes that he can just let it just like lotion sink into his skin and he doesn't have to lash back, but it, it might take several tries before he receives it the way you wish him to receive it. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get his number and send him a text here. I thought you thinking about him. He, yeah. He's in Spokane. Is that what you said? Yeah, he is. So a couple of things that I've heard you say over and over again, um, that I too agree with, like a tool or technique or a ritual that can help our audience, whether they be in recovery on their own path of recovery or a family member, a loved one of recovery, uh, is the word intention leading with intention and being the owner of your actions and your relationship and your, the interactions that you have on a consistent basis. The second thing that, that you, you talked about was physical health practices. I see a little bike behind your head there, <laughs> a little road bike. Yeah. So just, Justin and I are both uh, fans of triathlon and we both compete in triathlon. Um, what does the role of physical health play in your life and how do you um, relay that message to people, to families, um, who are, you know, are struggling to try to learn these things. Like how does that focus on physical health practices apply to your clientele? Mm, thanks for asking. I love Sorry, that. That's two kind of two-sided questions. So yeah. Yeah. I, I could talk about bikes and, um, I could talk about triathlons too all day long. So I went from being a runner, um, you know, I was a runner from the time I was like, whatever, eight, um, and ran, um, many marathons, um, and went into triathlons myself actually, um, when my kids were little and I did several, um, various distance up, up through half Ironman. It was always my goal to do an Ironman when I turned 50. Um, but I, um, over the course of that time. So my unhealthy relationship with physical exercise really became obsessive and self-punishing, um, particularly with running and honestly, a little bit with triathlon as well, because it's such a, as you know, such a, um, oh gosh, there's so much data. <laughs> there's oh, so crazy. many details. <laughs> yeah. A lot of garments, the auras, the whoops, the all, yeah, yeah all the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. Right. So it, it gave me something to obsess over mm. that felt better than obsessing over something that I didn't have control over. Um, I had a whole lot of control over the many miles that I would run. And in looking back, that was definitely uh, probably like clinically unhealthy, became a clinically unhealthy relationship with running. Um, I, I had hip surgery and, um, can't, can't run the amount that I used to run. And so now I pretty, um, solely, uh, ride bikes. 
Um, and I ride mountain bikes and road bikes, uh, mainly mount, or mainly road bikes. And I like to ride up large hills like Pikes Peak and Mount Evans and Independence Pass and, um, and the big ones. So I'd like to go to Haleakala. And um, so I like to, I like to run up big, ride up big hills. Um, so I use with families and I have a much healthier relationship with, um, physical exercise now. In fact, I have, um, I play tennis one day a week. Well, I'm not a tennis player and I play doubles tennis with a group of people and I'm, there's zero outcome. Um, I, I get competitive, I'm competitive. So I do get frustrated with myself, but there isn't an expectation to win or get faster, um, or beat a time or beat a person or put myself on Strava and have people think I'm amazing or go to the grocery store and have, be asked by eight people, what are you training for? Um, that became, it kind of became almost like this safety identity for me. Like, please don't ask me about my son, ask me about something else. And that was what they could ask me about because it was, I was obsessive about it. So, um, that is unhealthy. Um, when I started to get healthier, um, letting go of, I mean, I was also getting older and my body wasn't kind of doing as easily as what I wanted it to do. Um, I had to rest more. Um, I use the eight dimensions of wellness with my clients. Um, the eight dimension model. I know there's like 12 and six models too, but I use eight and physical well-being is frequently a bucket that's low and particularly with the women that I work with which is funny because I'm a female and that bucket for me is high um there's other buckets that are low but that one's high um but women in particular will find a lot of reasons why you know they um don't take care of themselves physically and integrate like movement um and care of their body into their life um so, I mean, I think that's how I, I bring it up is just talking about the eight dimensions and, you know, we assess like which one of these buckets are suffering, which one do you avoid? How, how, do, why do you avoid it? Um, and finding ways to integrate, um, you know, things into that bucket that they enjoy that don't feel like a punishment, um, I think that's really important actually, because I do think that physical movement can become like a substitute for the other obsessive behavior. Um, and I'll use the word intentionality again, just being intentional about what, what am I trying to get out of this and why? And the answer can be win. Um, that's an okay answer. Um, but why, I think that's the important part. Why is that what's going to bring you, um, self-acceptance? Hmm. Maybe there's a better way. Mm. Um, is that what's going to bring you um, a feeling of accomplishment because you dug in and worked really hard on a training plan and set a goal for yourself? That might be a healthier answer to why, when. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. That's very, very insightful. So to kind of elaborate on that, like what are some of the things that you do that you suggest? Because, you know, um, not to go too deep into it, but we just opened up an IOP PHP treatment center here in Denver. Um, and some of the core foundations of what we're really trying to implement are built around this focus on physical health practices. So like, 
um, we have an idea of how we're going to implement that. I'm, I'm just curious to see, like, what are some of the things that you do to really help encourage those, uh, maybe if they're females in particular or, or just families in general who have uh, an aversion to want to, like, do something hard? Um, and then I have a follow-up question to that after you yeah. answer that. So I think for anybody, um, in order to use physical movement in a healing way, it's got to provide kind of some inspiration for you. I think it's got to provide a sense of power or a sense of peace. I mean, doesn't it's different for everybody. My son is a, he likes to climb rock climb and he's just, I mean, that's an integral part of his recovery. And, um, I think for him, I'm just going to answer for him and make this up. I think it's, I think I'm right though. Um, that there's a sense of, um, adventure and a rush. Um, I think there's also a sense of quiet on the rock. Um, and, and his mind is not quiet very often. And so he really has to, in order when you're rock climbing and you're figuring out a problem, that's what it's called on the rock. Um, (laughs) um, and you're, (laughs) I, I do rock climb with him. It's not my favorite thing now, but, um, and you're figuring out a problem. You have to quiet your mind. You have to, um, be in the moment. Um, and for him, that's super important for me. I love riding my bike up big hills because I feel powerful. I feel in control. Um, I, a little bit like passing people, <laughs> um, or getting to the top and having some guy go, Oh my gosh, you beat me. I, that happened this summer on independence pass. They were like, did you do it in this time? And I go, no. And I showed him my watch and they were like, you beat us by 20 minutes. I'm like, Nope. Um, and <laughs> it felt good. Not because I'm, you know, I'm better than them because I just felt like I, I worked for months to be able to do this climb and have it feel strong and experience this grandness that was around me. And we just have amazing, um, landscape here and, um, it it felt really great. But if you don't have a thing, try moving, (laughs) just try moving, get yourself moving, find what it is. You don't have to like yoga. You don't have to like walking. You don't have to like running. You don't have to like bike riding. You don't have to like sweating. Um, what is it and why do you like it? So rather than thinking about, I don't know if I'm getting to the answer of your question. I think rather than thinking about, um, fitness as a way to lose weight, a way to be able to eat ice cream at night, um, because I'm supposed to, because my doctor told me so, um, what can you gain from it? Can you gain peace? Can you find quiet for your brain? Can you find connection with other people? Can you find, um, adventure? Can you find appreciation of nature? Um, can you find your own power, but you have to find something otherwise it is torture. Absolutely. For the wrong reason. Absolutely. No, that's a great, great answer. You definitely answered the question. And it's like, I mean, that's, that's the million dollar question. Um, but if you, I mean, you said why, right. And purpose, which kind of goes to your next ritual or technique or tool, um, for thriving and recovering and living your best life. And that is purposeful work. Um, 
before we quite move on to, you know, learning more about where people can find you out or find, find out more about you and um, learn more about you or talk to you and reach out to you. You mentioned the eight dimensions of wellness. Can you just briefly name the other dimensions other than uh, health practice? Just, just we can, I know this could be a whole nother podcast in and of itself, yeah. but let's, let's see if I can get them all. There's physical, emotional, spiritual, occupational, intellectual. Um, uh, community, um, environmental, uh, which I think is a really important one. We can talk about that if you want. And what am I missing? Um, relation, relational, re- maybe relational. Oh, purpose and relational. Yeah. Um, so environmental is one. And sometimes people are like, well, um, but in environmental wellness has a lot of different, um, kind of answers to it, but frequently when I'm talking to families, you know, and they've got someone maybe living in their house using drugs and they might have babies in the house. Um, that's an environmental hazard, um, for young children, or there are people that have housing, water, food insecurity, and that's an environmental bucket. That's super important, um, to address. And, um, gosh, Justin, I think, I think about your brother, right? Like, um, he is, his environmental bucket is, is empty. Um, and that's, it's really important. And I think when we're helping people, um, as helping people with substance use, um, it's important to understand that they have all those buckets as well. Um, so what was your question around that? the eight dimensions. I'm sorry. Just, just really diving into what the eight dimensions are and how they fit into a purposeful life. Right. So if you're uber focused on work and, um, go to church every Sunday and check the boxes and and you get up at 4am and you work out, um, and you, you know, are, follow some sort of strict diet. You've got some super full controlled buckets that are overflowing. But if you come home and you sit in your room and don't engage with your spouse at night, your relational bucket is really low. If you have isolated yourself from your friends because you have this um, secret in your family and you dove into the things you can control at an ultra level, food, exercise. I go to church, so I look good. And, um, and I work really hard. I'm super successful at my job. Um, there's a whole lot of other buckets. There's a whole half of your body, whole half of your being that is really sad. And other people aren't able to experience your whole self as well as you not being able to experience your whole self. What would happen if, um, you let some of this sink down just a little bit, maybe 4.00 AM could be 5.00 AM. Can we do one hour of workout instead of two hours of workout before work? And maybe that's not reasonable. If you're training for an Ironman, that is not reasonable, but maybe you're just training for a 5k or just trying to stay fit. I don't know. Um, maybe you're just riding your Peloton. Um, like, does it have to be two hours of working out? I'm not sure. Can it instead be 
um, you know, spending a little bit of time with your spouse in the morning over coffee and just connecting about the day that might fill your relational bucket just a little bit. And can you be intentional about the buckets that you're overfilling and ask yourself, why, why am I overfilling this? Maybe it's because I actually can't sit still with what I'm dealing with. I can't, I it's too hard to sit in the grief. It's too hard to sit in the fear of what might happen. Hmm. In order to actually get through that, you have to feel it. Mm -hmm. Totally. That's the self-compassion piece of like my work. I, I, can I share a story? Of course, please. Um, so my son told this story, he's a wilderness guide in Utah. Um, and he told the story of, um, they, they got a, weird rainstorm. <laughs> um, and normally when you're in kind of wilderness treatment, you stay out of the rain, you go snow or sun, but you don't like, it's okay if you get snowed on, not okay. If you get rained on because you don't use tents. And so if your sleeping bag gets wet, it's not good. Um, so they got, they had this weird rainstorm that came through and he was the guy who was sitting in the laundromat with um, the petty cash, drying all of the negative 20 sleeping bags to try and get it so that the clients could sleep that night in a not wet sleeping bag. So he was in the laundromat all day and all of the groups from the um, treatment center were bringing their sleeping bags and he was drying them. And he was whatever on his phone and kind of occupying himself. And there was a guy who was coming into the laundromat who was um, in his mind, clearly going in the bathroom and using drugs. He knew it. He was just like, he's using drugs and he's using the drug that I use. So, huh. so it was kind of putting him into a, you know, a hard place that he had to kind of work through and he couldn't leave because there were these really expensive sleeping bags that were taking up all the laundry um, dryers. And he was like, they're going to get stolen. Um, so I have to stay here. So I've got to kind of get through this hard thing um, differently. And what he relayed to me was that in the past, it was just a kind of an observation of himself. He said in the past, when I had relapsed, I had always met the feeling of wanting to use again with judgment. Um, so I would meet a craving with, with self-judgment. Like, how could you do this? How could you throw all this away? You know, you've got this much time and you would do that again. How could you do this to your family? All of the stuff you are, you, you are just an addict. That's all you are. They were right. You, you're not going to be able to do this. And then he said, even at times it was crazy because that feeling comes and goes and it like, there's kind of a time and then it passes and you're okay. Right. And he's like, I would have to go somewhere to acquire the substances that I wanted. And I didn't even want it anymore. And yet I would still use because it was all about self-judgment. I was just like, you're worthless. And he said that when things changed for him was when he started meeting his um, flaws, his just his own feelings of wanting to use with compassion. Of course you do, because it works. It works for you right now. It doesn't work long-term, but it works for you right now. Of course you do, because this is hard. This is a hard thing that you're going through. And that kind of makes it go away, at least for a little bit. So I really try to, with families, 
I tell them that story and I use the same thing. You know what? It's easier to work 12 hours a day. It just is. I know because I did it. It's easier to, to punish yourself with physical, um, hard physical feats because the pain is then it's real. It feels real instead of emotional, which is a lot harder to sit in. Um, to me, sweat and physical pain is a whole lot easier than, than grief and fear. Um, that's a hard one to sit with. Um, but the only way to actually get through those hard things is to acknowledge it and feel it. So all of those buckets that you're allowing to be empty right now, acknowledge it. And maybe today you don't have to address it, or maybe you just, just acknowledging it puts a few drops into that bucket. And then tomorrow, look at it again and say, "Mm, you know what, maybe I'm going to go to a support group and I'm going to walk in and everyone's going to know, everyone's going to know that this is in my house, but I'll have a sense of community that might be better. That's amazing. How can families reach out to you if they're struggling with, with some of this right now, um, or they want to talk to you, where can they, where can they find you online? Um, where on social media, um, how can people connect with you? Yeah. Um, I'm, my website is the easiest place that it's also got my phone number on there and I'm pretty open about answering my phone. So, um, that's reclaim and recover.org. Um, I'm probably the most social media active on Instagram. That's reclaim underscore recover. Um, I I'm on the TikTok. It's a little mortifying. Also reclaim underscore recover. I'm on the side of TikTok where the young people go, aren't you too old for TikTok? But I show up. Um, I show up. And then um, I also am on Facebook and LinkedIn at Reclaim and Recover. And my name is Lisa Smith on LinkedIn. It's my professional profile. So um, I'm again, my website has all of those things and my phone number as well as my email, Lisa at reclaimrecover.org. And um, I'd love to support people um, to invest in their, in their family and in themselves. You are such a beautiful soul. You are amazing. I love the work that you're doing. Um, I definitely want to connect with you outside of this podcast and um, have you come and help some of the the families that we're working with. Um, In closing, I want to ask you what your take is and your understanding is um, on the meaning of life. What is the meaning of life to you? Who? I don't know. Uh, the meaning of life. Oh, I, I can't remember what I answered on that. Um, I'm going to go back to my, just my daily focus of intentionality. I think the meaning of life to me, what brings life meaning is to slow down and not miss any opportunity to connect with somebody to find gratitude or joy in the smallest of things. I mean, 
I love watching the hummingbirds in the, in the summer and I'll sit and watch them forever. Um, and to just make other people's walk a little bit easier. I love that. Justin, that reminds me of, uh, John Egan's response about, uh, our question, what is recovery? Um, very similar answers there, uh, being of service, deriving purpose from helping others and being caring and listening, um, and, and serving ultimately. Lisa, you are so amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I really appreciate you coming on here and, and, and sharing all of this with, with us and with our audience. And, uh, again, I really look forward to connecting with you outside of this podcast as well. And everybody listening, uh, we'll put all of Lisa's, um, information that she just shared with us in the show notes and reach out to her if you need some help and, uh, you know, are looking for some assistance. Uh, again, thank you so much, Lisa. Thanks for having yeah, thank me. Thank you for uh, reframing a lot of things for me, including the holidays and then most importantly, my relationship with my brother. I, I you. So, help you.